0: Our sermon passage this morning comes from John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, and then we'll jump down to verse 44. John chapter 6, 37 through 40, and then verse 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There is 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Bible tells us about a little boy named Samuel. His mother's name was Hannah. Hannah wanted very much to have a baby, but for many years she did not have one. And she asked God to give her a baby, and she even promised the Lord that if he did, as soon as the baby was old enough to no longer just drink milk from a bottle, she would give the baby to the Lord. Well, the Lord answered her prayer, and when the day came for little Samuel that he was no longer just drinking milk from his bottle but eating actual food, Hannah took Samuel to the church and gave him to the old minister whose name was Eli. Little Samuel was going to help Eli with anything he needed done. Hannah made Samuel a little robe, kind of like what I'm wearing, for Samuel to wear as he served God. And when she'd come to visit him, if he had grown a little bit and the robe was too small, she'd bring another one as he outgrew the others. Now, the Church of Israel back in those days was a tent. It was big, but it was, it was still a tent. And it had lots of special rooms inside for different things, just like our church has rooms for different things. Eli slept in a bedroom in the tent church, but Samuel slept inside the sanctuary, like right where you are right now. And there was a candle that burned all day and all night in the, tem- in the tabernacle, this tent, And Samuel would always make sure that it had enough oil that it wouldn't burn out. One night while he was sleeping, he heard a voice call. Samuel! He got up and he ran to Eli to see what he wanted, but Eli was asleep. So Samuel woke him and asked why he had called, and Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So Samuel went lay back down. A few minutes later, he heard the voice call him again. Samuel! So he got up and ran back to Eli, but Eli had not called him. Well, Eli realized that this must be God calling little Samuel to serve him for some special way. So Eli said, If the voice calls you again, answer and say, Speak to me, Lord, I'm listening. After a few minutes, the voice called again. So Eli did, or Samuel did what Eli told him. He said, Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. And the Lord gave him a message about Eli's family and about the future of Israel as God's people. Now, there was nothing special about Samuel. He was a kid just like any of you. What I want you to notice, though, is that God was calling Samuel to serve him, even though he was young, and God didn't stop calling him until Samuel answered, Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. God calls people to Himself to love and serve Him. Sometimes He calls them when they're little babies. Sometimes He calls them when they're a little bigger. Sometimes He calls them when they're grown-ups. About 1,900 years ago, a Christian pastor by the name of Irenaeus wrote some very good books about the Christian faith. And in one of his books, he taught how that Jesus went through all the stages of life, from being a baby inside His mommy's belly to being a newborn, to being a toddler, to being a big boy like some of you, to being a teenager, to being a grown-up. Because Jesus came to save people in all those stages of life. God has given you a wonderful gift, better than any Christmas present, better than any birthday present you could ever dream of. He gave you Christian parents, and He called you to love and serve Him as little children. Like little Samuel... You should listen carefully to this lesson and to the sermons every Sunday and say, Speak to me, Lord, I'm listening. We'll pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind. The power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We humbly entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit, and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. reread our sermon text briefly. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Our three sermon points, as are in the bulletin, are number one, none come but those drawn, or none but those drawn come. Same thing. Number two, those drawn come. And thirdly, the graciousness of grace. So for our first point, none but the drawn come. Now let's review our, the previous ideas so that we can see the inevitability of this next point. If all men are totally depraved and therefore totally unable, ina- or unable, of doing anything that would tend to their salvation, then God must have elected them who will be saved, otherwise, no one would be saved. A man who is totally evil and whose heart and imagination are given only to only evil continually would never of his own exercise his will to believe in Christ. A sinner placing his faith in Christ of his own will is like a fish flying of his own will. It's contrary to his nature. Faith and repentance are spiritual acts and therefore they cannot be done by carnal men. So that term, irresistible grace, refers to the inevitable and positive response by the elect sinner to the inward call of the Holy Spirit. The omnipotent Spirit of Almighty God causes the elect to possess true faith. He creates it in their hearts by the preaching of the gospel. When the Spirit of God applies the work of Christ to a person's heart, that person cannot resist the change. Now that doesn't mean that the person is unwilling and that the Holy Spirit is coercing him. Rather, the Spirit of God changes his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. This change opens the eyes of the spiritually blind to see the work of Christ, the Spirit of God will accomplish what he sets out to do, and he will not be frustrated in his work of changing the sinner's heart. So instead of saying that the person cannot resist the change, it might be more accurate to say that the person will not uh, resist the change wrought by the Holy Spirit. Now, grace, by definition, is undeserved. Sinners don't deserve a break And man in his fallen condition is incapable of seeking God's grace. If he's ever to experience it, it must be purely of God's initiative, and it must be effectual. In John 10, Jesus tells his disciples that he has other sheep. And he's referring to those who will come to faith in future centuries as the church fulfills the Great Commission. And in the first 30 verses of John chapter 10, Jesus uses some pretty confident language about the future sh- faith of these other sheep. He says, I must bring them and they will come. He entertains no doubts about the future faith of these other sheep. Now, the Arminian remonstrance insisted that the deciding factor in salvation must be man's free will. Man must be free, they argued, to accept... Or reject Christ, otherwise salvation is a sham. Now we've dealt with that foolishness elsewhere, so I won't spend a lot of time refuting it in detail this morning. Let me just observe that for all the extolling of the power of free will, the remonstrance had no problem giving God the short end of that stick. Everyone seemed to have it but Him. Does the word almighty mean anything if it doesn't mean mighty over all? In John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now notice that these verses do not say, no one will come or will not know, because the passages are not addressing willingness They both say cannot, which refers to ability. The only person who ever comes to Christ is the one that the Father draws. And that Greek word means literally to drag, like a fisherman dragging his net up onto the shore. Men come to Christ when God drags them, when He draws them. Only the spiritual person, that is, the one whom God has made alive in Christ, can understand the things of the Spirit of God. Faith is a gift of God. How can it be a requirement for regeneration if it's the result of it? A wheel doesn't run well in order to become round. It runs well because it is round. The remonstrance would have man's free will be the hinge upon which salvation turns. If a man will be saved, they reasoned. He must exercise his will freely. And so any form of influence would be seen as unfair, taking away from man the merit of his good choice. But that's precisely what Scripture would take away from man. The biblical testimony is consistent. Over and over we are told that our salvation was not the result of our will, but the result of God's sovereign will. John one thirteen says that regeneration is, quote, not of the will of man, but of God. The image of salvation as a birth negates the idea of participation of the will on the part of the person being regenerated. What baby has ever cooperated with his own conception? Christ claims to give eternal life to those he chooses and he says that no one can come to him unless he is drawn by the Father. And that leads to our second point. Those drawn come The fact that grace is irresistible is seen in its efficacy. Who among the people recorded in Scripture ever fought against God's grace and won? Who successfully resisted God's will in drawing him to Christ for salvation? If God is the author of this salvation and it is given by grace, then it must by definition be efficacious. It is not true that there are sinners who seek God's grace. The Bible explicitly denies such a notion. Romans 3 puts a bullet in the head of that fiction. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Was Paul seeking for God's grace? when he headed to Damascus, breathing out slaughter against the church? Romans, uh, in Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion is recorded in these words. Then Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, let's repeat the question. Was the Christ-hating Saul seeking for God's grace when he headed to Damascus to arrest and imprison Christians? Can you imagine being hit with a flash of light so bright that it knocked you off your horse, struck you blind, and then had Jesus speak to you directly? Paul immediately recognizes Jesus as Lord and goes to Damascus in repentance and is baptized as a Christian three days later. Does any of that sound resistible to you? Does that sound like Paul was of his own free will cooperating with God's grace? We're supposed to think that he willingly let himself get knocked off his horse and blinded? No, this was a sinful rebel stopped dead in his tracks. Now, that's Paul's account of what happened. But when he explains it theologically as he does in Galatians 1, he puts it in the terms that we've been dealing with for the past three weeks. He says, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me. Notice the chain of events and that they correspond directly with the points that we've been discussing. A totally depraved sinner, a man who in a million years would never have sought for grace in Christ because he believed that he had already attained his salvation by his own righteousness, This man is brought to faith and repentance, faith in Jesus, by being ambushed on the road to Damascus, knocked off his horse, and blinded for three days. And this happened because God elected him to salvation, or as he put it, separated me from my mother's womb. This is clearly unconditional election. Would anything Paul have done up to this point have merited favor with God? He was trying to destroy Christ's church for crying out loud. And when God called him in his grace, Paul could not, did not resist. The church fi- father, Gregory Nancy Anzen, calls this being shot with the arrow of election. Here's another place where the remonstrant system breaks down. When forced into a corner by direct statements of Scripture, such as those regarding God's sovereignty over men's wills, in the reprobation of Pharaoh and Judas Iscariot, or the calling of Jeremiah and John the Baptist or Paul, they insist on treating these as special cases. Scripture never even hints that these are special cases. We have every reason to treat these cases as normative. No doubt, Paul saw something special in his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. But he made no pretensions of superiority over any other Christian on the planet when it came to being a Christian. Scripture uniformly attributes the conversion and regeneration of sinners to God alone. In fact, Scripture routinely expresses salvation in terms that completely rule out any idea of cooperation between God and the sinner. In Romans 9.16, we read, "...it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy." Now, that couldn't be said if men had to cooperate with God's grace for their salvation. Now, some object that this verse merely means that men's willing and running are not enough without the grace of God. But if that were true, the converse would be true also. That God's grace is not enough without men willing and running. What, God's not strong enough to do what He wants without our help? I don't know how they do things in Disney World, but in the real world, God doesn't need anyone's help to do what He wants. The whole intent of the gospel is to show that man is a recipient of God's grace, not a participant. And that grace always achieves its end. Jeremiah 31, 23, Turn me, and I will be turned. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. We come to our third point, the graciousness of grace. Now our text tells us that Christ has not... The slightest doubt or fear that anyone whom the Father gives him, will, who he atones for and who believes in him unto eternal life, will somehow fall away from the faith. No sheep of Jesus will slip through his fingers. I'm not trying to get ahead of myself, since that's the subject for next Sunday, but this truth is right here in our sermon text, and that actually demonstrates another beautiful feature of Reformed theology, especially its doctrine of salvation. It's logically consistent. It doesn't make us hold contradictory ideas. The remonstrance does. It says that God is sovereign, and yet his plans are constantly being thwarted by little sinners. In the remonstrance system, you'd almost think the devil was the boss, and God was the underdog who, while he may eventually win in the end, it won't be because of his almighty and sovereign power, but by his outmaneuvering of Satan with sneaky little tricks. Now, since I want to save something for next week, I want to turn our focus back to the word grace. If you've been paying even the smallest bit of attention to my sermons for the past few months, you will have noticed a sharp and often uncomfortable emphasis on the doctrine of sin. This has not been by accident. We cannot even remotely begin to understand and appreciate the grace of God, the good news of the gospel, until we see something of the depths of our own sinfulness. And this is really the reason why the doctrine of total depravity is so helpful. It stops us from comparing ourselves with others. It stops us from imagining that some people are more likely than others to come to Christ. Everyone who comes to Christ does so because God has called them and the Holy Spirit has so changed their rebellious will that they humbly, repentantly, and willingly bow the knee to Jesus and His righteousness. No sinner is less hateful toward God than any other sinner. No sinner is less or more depraved than any other sinner. Nothing in me would ever incline me to come to Christ, yet here I am. I didn't seek it, yet I have received it. And let me just say that for most of you here, God's grace has been such that you might not have realized its irresistible nature because you were born and raised in the covenant. God gave you to Christian parents who presented you for baptism when you were infants. You were treated, as you indeed were, as true members of Christ's church right from your birth. You were catechized. You were confirmed and welcomed into all the privileges of full adult membership. Throughout history, the norm has always been for covenant children to never know a time when they did not love the Lord. On Confirmation Sunday, I demonstrated how God has always grown his church in the line of generations. It is not less gracious of God to subdue an infant to himself, causing the child to grow from infancy as a Christian who has been granted the gift of faith than it is for God to sovereignly convert a drug dealer who grew up on the streets without the nurture and guidance of parents. In either case, God has subdued the natural resistance of a sinner's heart. In one case, he's done it after the person has made a total hash of their life. In the other case, he's done it, he has preserved the person from countless heartaches resulting from a life of sin. But in both cases, the sinful natures of the two individuals were equally depraved and at enmity against God. Never, never let anyone discount the grace of God that you have been a beneficiary of if you were born into a covenant home. Never let some used car salesman of a preacher try to talk you into doubting the genuineness of of your profession of faith just because you didn't have some revivalist-induced crisis conversion experience. God has shown you His grace. Whether you were regenerated under God in the womb, as was Jeremiah or John the Baptist, or as an adult, as was Cornelius the Centurion, in either case, it was God's eternal love that worked it. Without any reference to your works, good or bad, God sovereignly set his love upon you, and by his power, the only thing that can do it, he brought you to himself by granting you repentance and causing you to trust solely in Jesus for your right standing before God. David writes, You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. From my mother's womb you have been my God. David also says, upon you I have leaned from before my birth. To save an unborn baby from its sins requires the same almighty power of God as it does to save a 65-year-old hardened criminal from his sins. And this is proof of the irresistibility of saving grace. No one in this sanctuary was ever given a chance to resist. You were all brought to God in your infancy. Now, every person I've ever met who came to faith later in life always tells their story in pretty much the same terms as the Apostle Paul. I was running from God. Uh, I never went to church unless I was forced to. Everywhere I went, though, there seemed to be Christians who were sharing their faith with me. God eventually wore down my resistance, and I surrendered to Him. The Christian from infancy, as well as the converted former bank robber, can both say with equal honesty... Amazing grace saved a wretch like me. Now often the truth of this doctrine is expressed under the term effectual calling. Now the idea here is that people may outwardly hear the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Christ, but the preaching of the gospel only produces faith in the hearts of the elect among those who hear the preaching. Catechism question 65 puts it, The Holy Ghost works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel you may have noticed that we keep coming back to the issue of assurance of salvation. And again, we find in the doctrine of irresistible grace, comfort for our hearts, comfort of assurance. The certainty lies in the fact that what God has purposed cannot be frustrated. Isaiah 14:27 says, The Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Who among us, weak and feeble humans that we are, if he can help it, would let a great plan go to pieces after he had spent many a sleepless night working out all the details? Is the sovereign God of the universe in whose hand is the breath of man to be frustrated and that by puny creatures of the dust? If God has a purpose to save me, Since he has willed it according to his infinite wisdom and accomplishes it according to his infinite power, I can smile at all the attempts of men and demons against me. I am secure in his hand and no one can pluck me out of it. If I can say God has called me, I may be sure that he has elected me. There are no weak links in the golden chain of salvation. If God is elected, he will call. If he is called, it is because he has elected. It is not God's will that I doubt my election. Since faith is a gift of God and He has worked it in my heart by the preaching of the Gospel, I have evidence of my eternal and unconditional election in the fact that I have come to Christ. He granted me faith and He only grants faith to those whom He has elected. Likewise, I never have to fear that I might accidentally slip the lead and perish. Perish. God's grace has overcome the total depravity of my nature and engrafted me into Christ by a true faith. He will preserve me in that faith. Neither man nor devil can defeat God. God is almighty, all-powerful, and sovereign. His grace has saved me, and His grace will not let me go. If I can say, I love God... I can be sure that I'm called because I couldn't love God if I had had not had sense and experience of His love toward me. What does the Scripture say? We love Him because He first loved us. All our comfort and assurance resolves into the sovereign and undefeatable purpose of God. The purpose of God to glorify Himself in our election unto salvation reveals itself When he subdues our depravity, grants us faith, and causes us to approach him. He irresistibly calls us by his grace, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, the source of all life and joy, who by the glad sound of the gospel has called us to have part in thy kingdom and glory. Shine powerfully into our hearts, we beseech thee, by thy word and spirit, and draw us with the cords of thy constraining grace, that we may heartily choose that good part which shall not be taken away from us, and give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. O God, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, regard with tender compassion thy servants, our brothers and sisters who are hospitalized in nursing home care, our shut-ins and those who are recovering from sickness and surgery. Be graciously near to them in their hour of need. Grant unto them, we beseech thee, true repentance for all their sins, a firm and steady trust in the merits of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and grace to be perfect in charity with all men. Enable them to cast their cares on thee and to yield themselves with childlike submission to thy righteous will. God of all power and grace, bless we entreat thee the means used for their recovery. Rebuke the violence of disease and raise them up from their bed of pain, that being delivered by thy compassion, they may walk before thee in newness of life. Let the arms of thy everlasting love be around them, and when flesh and heart shall fail, be thou the strength of their heart and their portion forevermore. Through the mediation and merits of our only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we are bold to pray.